So I begin my reading today with a book of dissident, dissent, the book of dissent. It is a revolutionary, it is revolutionary words basically put in a conglomeration. It's <laughs> probably not the right word for it. Let's see here if it tells me in the beginning. I picked this up at the library. Or maybe I was looking. I think I was looking for something. I was to reserve. And this came up in part of the title search. Or the subject search. Praise of dissent. Dissenting voices and rebellions. Against existing authority, pagan, tribal, religious, civil, feudal, bourgeois, and communist form a global pattern. They have always existed in some shape or another. It is sometimes automatically assumed that government, sorry, I don't know where I got government from that, (laughs) sorry, automatically assumed that conflict in ancient times or the medieval period and even the English, Dutch, and French revolutions lacked the clarity, insight, and precision of 20th century upheavals. This was not always the case. There are good reasons why the slave rebellion led by Spartacus left such a deep mark on history and was to be forever remembered, especially by the European theorists and practitioners of the revolu- of revolution in the 19th and 20th centuries. It was not accidental that the highly literate and cultivated German revolutionaries of the early 20th century named their organization Spartacusbund, Spartacus only to be crushed just as ruthlessly by the German state as the slaves who dared to free themselves were by its antique Roman predecessor. And so it goes. This is a book. um, Looks like it's been republished. It goes on and on about all the different uprisings and and different uh, revolutionaries throughout history. The Verso Book of Descent. Revolutionary words from three millennia of rebellion and resistance. And I just so happened to, I mean, of course it has all this history, but I just so happened to open it to Henry David Thoreau's piece on civil disobedience. It's on page 63, and it was in 1849 he said this. Under a government which imprisons any unjustly. The true place for a just man is also a prison. The proper place today, the only place which Massachusetts has provided for her freer and less desponding spirits is in her prisons to be put out and locked out of the state by her own act, as they have already put themselves out by their principles. It is there that the fugitive slave and the Mexican prisoner on parole and the Indian come to plead the wrongs of his race. Should find them on that separate but more free and honorable ground where the state places those who are not with her but against her. 
the only house in an in a slave state in which a free man can abide with honor. And there's a little note here. Thoreau refused to pay his poll tax in 1843 and spent a night in jail when his aunts paid the bill to his chagrin. If the government requires you to be the agent of injustice to another, he wrote after his home state of Massachusetts voted to return escaped slaves, then I say break the law. What I have to do is to see at any rate that I do not lend myself to the wrong which I condemn. The essay was originally published as Resistance to Civil Government. That sort of rings true for me today after having my little musing that I did earlier about McCabe and the FBI and DOJ and CIA that have attempted a soft coup on our sitting president, even though I can't stand the Trumpster. (laughs) Does he deserve people wiring up, trying to trap him? No, no. Is that how we treat Americans? I guess so. We treat other governments that way, I suppose. So we are now moving on into... Maggie. Maggie wants to say, Mommy, get on with the reading. So I'm moving into now part three of Emily Carr's autobiography called Growing Pains. Maggie cat has been meowing at the window and she just saw the big uh, she's up on the studio table looking out the windows in her queenly way (laughs) there is a uh, what do you call those an orange tabby in our yard big fat cat and it's been visiting lately along with this other little Greg Tabby. My cats are tortured because they're not allowed out in the front. And these cats come in at the front yard and sort of torture my babies. <laughs> they want to play. The other day I opened the door for them and they, they both sat between the screen. One, had, one ventured closer to the screen and, and Molly Cat hissed and made the cat run away. <laughs> Oh dear. Okay, so part three of Emily Carr. We are into the last part of this book, Growing Pains, the autobiography of Emily Carr. First chapter is called Caribou Gold. It starts on page 241. Just before I left England, a letter came from Caribou out in British Columbia. It said, Visit us at our caribou ranch on your way on your way west. The inviters were intimate friends of my girlhood. 
They had married while I was in England. Much of their lovemaking had been done in my old barn studio. Wow. (laughs) The husband seconded his wife's invitation, saying in a P.S., Make it a long visit. Leave the CPR train at Ashcroft. You will then travel by horse coach to the 150-mile house up the Caribou Road. A pretty bumpy road, too. I will make arrangements. I had always wanted to see the Caribou country. It is different from the coast, less heavily wooded, a grain and cattle raising country, coming as the invitation did. Excuse me, I had to move my book out from under the cord here so I can read it. <laughs> okay. Uh, let's see. It is different from the coast, less heavily wooded, a grain and cattle raising country. Coming as the invitation did, a break between the beating London had given me and the humiliation of going home to face the people of my own town, a failure, the caribou visit would be a flash of joy between two sombers. I got happier and happier every day, every mile as we pushed west. I loved Caribou from the moment of the CPR from the moment the CPR train spat me out of its bouncy coach. It was all fresh and new, and yet it contained the breath and the westernness that was born in me, the thing I could not find in the old world. I will admit that I did suffer two days of violence at the mercy of six-horse stagecoach which bumped me over the caribou over the caribou road and finally deposited me at the door of 150 mile house where my friend lived her husband being manager of the caribou trading company there it had been a strange rough journey yet full of interest no possible springs could endure such such pitch and toss as the bumps and holes in the old caribou roadbed played say that three times fast no possible springs could endure such pitch and toss as the bumps and holes in the old caribou road bed played the coach was slung on tremendous leather straps and for all that it was so and for all and for all that it was so ponderous it swayed and bounced like a swing a lady school teacher very in unenthusiastic at being assigned a rural school in the caribou shared the front top seat with the driver and me she did not speak only sighed the three of us were buckled into our seats by a great leather apron it caught driver around the middle and teacher and me under our chins we have been We might have been infant triplets strapped abreast into the seat of a mammoth pram. If we had not been strapped, we would have flown off the top of the stage. At the extra worst bumps, the heads of the inside passengers hit the roof of the coach. We heard them. (laughs) This reminds me of a story my Fama tells us or told me or told us, I don't know who she, yeah, I think it's us, about her time when she had to take the carriage because 
her mother was having her, one of her sisters. And her father, I guess, told her somehow to get, they had to bring the carriage or something. And she was in charge of driving it. And I don't remember how old she was, but she was a youngster. And she nearly flew off the carriage as the horse careened around some sort of muddy corner and almost turned the whole carriage over. I've tried to paint that scene. I'll have to find my sketches about that. That was back in 2014 and 15. I was trying to paint that scene somehow about her story about careening around a muddy hill or a muddy something trail of some sort I don't know exactly where it was I I know I think I might have that audio somewhere of her telling that story I should find it if I have it it's possible it's on a CD even hmm well anyway this this part of the story reminds me of that we changed horses every 10 miles and wished we could change ourselves holding on to yourself mile after mile got so tiresome the horses saved all their prance for final show-off dashings as they neared the changing barns. Here they galloped full pelt. Drivers shouted and the whip cracked in the clear air. Fresh horses pranced out to change places with tired ones, lively and gay, full of show-off. When blinkers were adjusted on the fresh horses so as not to tell tales, the weary ones sagged into the barn, their show-off done. The whole change only took a minute, scarcely halting our journey. Sometimes the driver let us climb a short hill on foot to ease the load and to uncramp us. It was beautiful country we passed through, open and rolling, vast cattle ranges, zigzag snake fences and beast-dotted pasturage with little groves of cotton poplars spread here and there. There were great wide tracks of wild grazing, too. The cotton poplars in the green fields were turning every shade of yellow. The foliage of the trees were threaded with the cottonwoods, silver-white stems. Long, level sweeps of rippling gold long, level sweeps of rippling gold grain were much richer and more luscious by contrast with the dun, already harvested stubble fields. Men had called this land golden caribou, in quotes, golden caribou, because of the metal they took from her soil and her creeks. But caribou's crust was a far more exquisite gold than the ore underneath. Liquid, ethereal, living gold. Everything in caribou was touched with gold. Even the chipmunks had golden stripes running down their brown coats. They were tiny creatures. There were tiny creatures. They were tiny creatures. Sorry. My mind, my brain, my eyeballs are not reading right. I don't know. Here we go. They were tiny creatures, only mouse big. They scampered 
beyond belief quick in single in single file processions of twinkling hurry over the top rail of the snake fences racing our stagecoach maybe i should practice reading the chapter before i actually audio it but i've never done that in the past so i don't really think i'm going to start now and this is a longer chapter so we may only do this one today dark we stopped at a roadhouse to eat and sleep. Caribou provides lavishly. We ate a huge meal and were then hustled off to bed only to be torn from sleep again at 2 a.m. and remealed. A, tire, a terrible spread, neither breakfast, dinner, nor supper, but a three-in-one meal, starting with porridge, bacon and eggs, and coffee, continuing with beefsteak, roast potatoes, and boiled cabbage, culminating in pudding, ri- pudding, pie, and strong tea. The meal climaxed finally on its centerpiece, an immense frosted jelly cake mounted on a pedestal platter. Its gleaming frosting shimmered under a coal oil lamp suspended over the table's center. At first, I thought it was a wedding cake, but as every meal in every roadhouse in Caribou had just such a cake, I concluded it was just Caribou. The teacher's stomach and mine were taken aback at such a meal at such an hour. We shrank, but our hostess and the driver <laughs> the driver urged, excuse me, eat, eat, it's a long hard ride and no stop till noon. The bumps would digest us. We did what we could. At 3 a.m., we trembled out into the cold stillness of starry not, yet, starry, not yet day. A slow, long hill was before us. The altitude made my head woozy. It wobbled over the edge of the leather apron buckled under our chins. Between teacher and driver, I slept cozy as jam in a roly-poly. The 150-mile trading post consisted of a store, a roadhouse where travelers could stop or could pause between stages to get a meal, and a huge cattle barn. These wooden structures stood on a little rise and tucked below, very primitive and beyond our seeing and hearing, because the the tiny village lay under the bluff on which sat the Caribou Trading Company, were a few little houses. These homes housed employees of the company. On all sides, beyond the village, lay a rolling sea of land, vast cattle ranges, snake-fenced grain fields, space, space. Wild creatures, big and little, were more astonished than frightened at us. All, All they knew was space. My friend met the coach. Same old Millie, she laughed, following her point and her grin. I saw at my feet a small black cat rubbing ecstatically around my shoes. Did you bring her all the way, uncrated? I did not bring her at all. Does she not belong here? Not a cat in the village. Wherever she belonged, the cat claimed me. 
It was as if she had expected me all her life and was beyond glad to find me. She followed me every step. We combed the district later trying to discover her owner. No one had seen the creature before. At the end of my two months' visit in the caribou, I gave her to a kind man in the store, very eager to have her. Man and cat watched the stage lumber away. The man stooped to pick up his cat. She was gone. No one ever saw her again. I can never love caribou enough for all she gave to me. Mounted on a cow pony, I roamed the land, not knowing where I went. To be alive, going, that was enough. I absorbed the trackless, rolling space, its cattle, its wildlife, its shy creatures who wondered why their solitudes should be plagued by men and guns. Up to this time, I had always decorously, sorry, decorously, (laughs) up to this time, I had always decorously used a side saddle and had ridden in a stiff hat in the long, flapping habit, proper for the date. There was only one old, old, one old, old horse, bony and with rough, hard gait, that would take side saddle in the caribou barns. My friend always rode this ancient beast and used an orthodox riding habit. I took my cue from a half-breed girl in the district, jumped into a Mexican cowboy saddle and rode astride, loping over the whole country, riding, riding to nowhere. Oh, goodness, how happy I was. Though far from yet strong, Though far from strong yet, in this freedom and fine air, I was gaining every week. When tired, I threw the reins over the pommel, over the pommel, and sat back in the saddle, <clears throat> leaving direction to the pony, trusting him to take me home, unguided. He never failed. I tamed squirrels and chipmunks, taking them back to Victoria with me later. I helped my host round up cattle i trailed breaks in fences when our cattle strayed a young coyote and i met face to face in a field once he had not seen nor winded me we nearly collided we did we sat down a few feet apart to consider each other he was pretty this strong young prairie wolf the most thrilling sight i saw in the caribou was a was a great company of wild geese feeding in a field. Wild geese are very wary. An old gander is always posted to warn the flock of the slightest hint of danger. The flock were feeding at sundown. The field looked like an immense animated page of pothooks as the looped necks of the feeding birds rose and fell, rose and fell. The sentinel honked with a whir of bur- with a whir of wi- wings. I strip. Sorry, Blah. let me start again. Let me go back to this part. The flock was were feeding at sundown. The field looked like an immense animated page of pothooks as the looped necks of the feeding birds rose and fell, rose and fell. I like that visual. The sentinel honked with a whir of wings, a straightening of necks, and a tucking back of legs. 
The flock rose instantly. They fell into formation, a wedge cutting clean, high air, the irregular monotony of their honking, tumbling back to earth, falling in a flurry through the air, helter-skelter, falling incessant as the flakes in a snowstorm. Long after the sky had taken the geese into its hiding, their honks came back to earth and us. Bands of coyotes came to the creek below our windows and made night hideous by agonized howlings. No one had warned me, and the first night I thought some fearless, some fearfulness had overtaken the world. Their cries expressed woe, cruelty, anger, utter despair. Torn from sleep, I sat up in my bed, shaking, my room reeking with horror. Old miners say the coyote, or coyote, I like to call it both, old miners say the coyote is a ventriloquist, that from a far ridge he can throw his voice right beside you, while from close he can make himself sound very far. I certainly thought that night my room was stuffed with, uh, with coyotes. In Caribou, I did not paint. I pushed paint away from me, together with the failure and disappointment of the last five years. I almost did that this time myself. There was an Indian there was an Indian settlement a mile or two away. I used to ride there to barter my clothing for the Indians' beautiful baskets. At last I had nothing left but the clothes I stood in, but I owned some nice baskets. My friend was puzzled and disappointed. We had known each other since early childhood. She had anticipated my companionship with pleasure. But here I was. Millie, she said disgustedly, you are as immature and unsophisticated as when you left home. You must have gone through London with your eyes shut. And taking her gun, she went out. She seldom rode, preferring to walk with gun and dog. She came home in, in exasperated pets of disgust. Never saw a living creature, did you? All kinds. The critters know the difference between a sketching easel and a gun, I laughed. We never agreed on the subject of shooting. She practiced on any living thing. It provoked her that creatures would not sit still to be shot. London has not sophisticated you at all, she complained. I have quite outgrown you since I married. Perhaps, but maybe London had had less to do with retarding my development than disappointment had. She was bored by this country as I had been bored by London. Quite right, we were now far apart as the Poles. No one's fault. Surfacely, we were good. We were very good friends. Down deep, we were not friends at all. Not even acquaintances. Winter began to nip caribou. The coast called in Vancouver Island that one step more western than the west. I went to her, longing yet dreading. Never had her forests looked so solemn. 
never her mountains so high, never her drift-laden beaches so vast. Oh, the gladness of my west again, immense Canada. Oh, her Pacific edge, her western limit. I blessed my luck in being born western as I climbed the stair of my old barn studio. During my absence, my sister had lent the studio to a person, to a parson, to use for a study. He had papered the walls with the daily colonist, sealed the windows. There were no cobwebs. Perhaps he had concocted them into sermons. As I ran across the floor to, the, to fling the window wide, everything preached at me. Creak of rusty hinge, the clean air rushed in. The cherry tree was gone, only the memory of its glory left. Was everything gone or dead or broken? No. Hurrying to me came Peacock, my Peacock, who had told him I was come. Had he, he had not been up on the studio roof this last five years. Glorious, exultant, he spread himself. Victoria had driven the woods back. My sister owned a beautiful mare which she permitted me to ride. On the mare, astride as I had ridden in caribou, my sheepdog following, I went into the woods. No woman had ridden across, had ridden cross saddle before in Victoria. Victoria was shocked. My family sighed. Cars had been Cars had always conformed. They believed in what always had been, continuing always to be. Cross saddle, why, everyone disapproved. Too bad, instead of England gentling me into an English miss with nice ways, I was more me than ever, just pure me. One thing England had taught me with which my friends and relatives would not tolerate. Smoking. Canadians thought smoking women fast and bad. There was a scene in which my eldest sister gave her ultimatum. If smoke you must, go to the barn and smoke with the cow. Smoke in my house you shall not. So I smoked with the cow. Neither she nor I were heavy smokers, but we enjoyed each other's company. And so I came back to British Columbia, not with know-it-all fanfare, not a successful student prepared to carry on art in the new world, just a broken-in health girl that had taken rather a hard whipping and was disgruntled with the world. Of my three intimate school friends, two were married and living in other places. The third was nursing in San Francisco. I made no new friends. One does not, after school days, unless there are others who are going your way or who have interests in common. Nobody was going my way, and their, their way did not interest me. I took my sheepdog and rode out to the woods. There I sat, dumb as a plate, staring, absorbing tremendously, though I did not realize it at the time. Again, I was struck by that vague similarity between London crowds and Canadian forests, each 
having its own sense of terrific power, density, and intensity, but similarly ceased there. But similarity, sorry, but similarity ceased there. The clamorous racing of hot human blood confused, perhaps revolted me a little sometimes. The woods standing, standing, holding the cool sap of vegetation, were healing, restful, after seeing the boil of humanity. Boy, that one, I'm going to read that again. The clamorous racing of hot human blood, confused, perhaps revolted me a little sometimes. The woods standing, standing, holding the cool sap of vegetation, were healing, restful after seeing the boil of humanity. It did me no harm to sit idle, still pondering in the vastness of the West, where every spilled sound came tumbling back to me in echo. After the mellow sweetness of England, with its perpetual undertone of humanity, it was good to stand in space. That was the chapter that starts part three of Emily Carr, Growing Pains, the autobiography. Our next chapter is called Vancouver. So this should be interesting since I just traveled to Vancouver this last July to see the folk music festival and meet some friends. So, yep. Um... It's not too long of a chapter that I can tell. Let me see here. It's only a few pages. Hmm. We'll see. I might get to France. It looks like she goes on to France. So that is that. And I hope you enjoyed. And thank you for listening. And until next time, I'm hoping to move forward and finish this book. We've only got probably, uh, I don't know, less than 100 pages. So. I want to finish this up because I already have an inkling of what I want to read next. And I'm finding, I know people may not like my reading, whatever, but (laughs) for me, it's helpful to read things out loud. I like to hear them back later on. And I also like to try to put certain things that I'm, I'm, um, reading out in the world, um, in an audio format, so that's my point, my intent. It also helps me get through some books, some books I would have probably put down after the first couple hundred pages. <laughs> that's how it happens for me. So thanks for listening in, and if you have any comments, leave them or not, but it's all, it's all good. Thanks again.